Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will once again take a quick tour of the intersection of the world of sports and law as we provide a crash course in contract law. Beginning with a quick discussion of where we see contracts in the real world, we will then move to break down three things everyone should know about contracts. So, if you're interested in learning what makes something a contract, how tampering in the NBA is illegal, or what happens when a contract is broken, then this is the podcast for you. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to once again do a crash course podcast in which instead of deep diving a topic, we provide a few key pieces of information about one specific thing with the goal of introducing you to something new and setting the table for future episodes and discussions. The topic we're going to introduce today, contracts, and more specifically, we're going to focus on three things everyone should know about contracts and how those things apply to the world of sports. To begin, the first thing that everyone needs to know is that contracts are everywhere. So let's start by talking about what a contract is, where they are, and how exactly they're formed. By definition, a contract is a written agreement that is intended to be enforced by law. We oftentimes think of contracts as employment agreements, but they extend far past just these agreements between employees and employers, and they include so many other types of agreements. For example, oftentimes when we sell things, we actually sign a contract to signify a changing in ownership of the item. If you've ever bought or sold a house, for example, you know this. We sign deeds signifying that you're paying a person who owns the property money, and in exchange, they're giving you ownership over that piece of land. Now, maybe you've never bought a piece of land or a house, but all of you, all of you, if you're listening to this, have signed contracts before, even if you've never had a job. How do I know that? Because you're listening to this using Apple or iTunes or Spotify. And in order to use those services, you are signing a term of service agreement or a term of use agreement, both of which are types of contracts. So the people that use Instagram or iTunes or Netflix, all those individuals that use those products have signed contracts or agreements between the company and themselves that lays out what the person must do or what they agree to do in order to use the product. So when you sign the Instagram terms of service contract by tapping accept you are entering into a contractual agreement in which Instagram gives you access to their platform. And in return, you are giving them a whole bunch of things, such as the right to, quote, make use of any user material, including pictures, for their own purposes of promotion without seeking permission. This includes the ability to edit, modify, share, copy, and communicate the content, end quote. In other words, 
The contractual agreement says that you can use the app Instagram and in exchange, they can use the material that you post and provide for whatever they want. So outside of employment agreements or the use of contracts when we sell items or terms and service agreements, we also see contracts in our everyday lives in things like wills or marriage licenses or waivers and release of liabilities for sport participation. We see them in indemnification agreements when you rent a car or piece of equipment or even in hotels and so on and so on. The point being, contracts are everywhere. And they impact us much more than people realize. Most people just hear that term contract and they automatically think of employment deals. But as you're hopefully starting to learn, they are literally a part of our everyday lives, even in ways that we might never have thought of. So you might be saying to yourself, well, that's great, but so what? Why are we hammering home this point? And the answer is because I want you to realize first and foremost what a contract is. So that way you can identify them. And then second, once you identify them and realize you're in a contractual negotiation or you're about to sign a contract, you can learn how to proceed to best protect yourself and get the most out of the deal. The question then becomes, how do we identify a contract? Especially since so many of the things that I just brought up, students have never thought of as being a contract. The easy answer For anything to be a contract, it has to have three legal elements. One, there has to be an offer. Two, there has to be consideration. And three, there has to be acceptance. Let's take a minute and break down these three things beginning with the offer. An offer is defined as a conditional promise made by an offerer to an offeree. Technically, for something to classify as an offer, it must include four things. It must include who the parties or people are involved. It must include the subject matter. It must include the time and place for the subject matter to be performed. And it must include the price to be paid or the things of value that are being exchanged. So the parties are going to be the name of the person and the company or the name of the two people entering into the agreement. The subject matter is going to be what the agreement is about. Is it for a professional contract to play baseball? Is it a contract dealing with a will? Is it a contract dealing with the sale of something? The time and place deals with where that subject matter, where the exchange of that subject matter is going to take place and where it's going to be performed. With a company, that time and place is the location of the corporate headquarters or location of the office. And then finally, the things of value that are included in an offer are also called the considerations, which we just said is the second element that is needed for something to be considered a legally binding contract. Now, legal dictionaries quite simply just define consideration as, quote, the value that each party to the contract is exchanging. But considerations aren't always as straightforward as that definition might make it seem. Because an important thing you need to remember is that both parties or both sides or both people in the contract have to receive things of value from the contract and those things of value must be relatively equal. 
So when I pose this in lecture to students, I always follow it by asking what the typical considerations are in an employment contract. And most people, without much thought, say, well, the money that you're getting paid because that's the thing of value that you get from the company. So your salary or your fringe benefits would be considered your consideration. But we can't stop the conversation there. So I always follow up with saying, well, what about the company? What about the other party to the contract? What are they getting a value in return for the money that they are giving to the employee? And this is a key point because remember, both sides have to receive something of equal value. So the thing of value that the company is getting, well, they're getting you to perform specific tasks. For example, with my current employment contract, the quote unquote things of value that I'm receiving is that money in the fringe benefits, things that include insurance, a 401k plan, etc. And in exchange for that money, the university is getting me to teach classes each semester. They're getting me to publish research and provide services for the university. In the athlete's contract with a team, the athlete's consideration is the money they receive, and the team's consideration is the athlete to come in and play or perform the specific sport. For coaches' contracts, the thing of value that the coach gets is, again, money. And the thing of value that the team gets is the coach to scout other teams, for them to put together game plans, for them to do weekly radio or TV shows, for them to speak to the press after the games, and so on and so on. With other contracts, like Instagram's terms of service that we brought up, the consumer gets use of Instagram for free. That is the thing of value the consumer receives. And then Instagram gets to take the data they collect from the users and use it themselves or sell it. They get to take those pictures that you post and use them as they see fit. In a sales contract, like buying homes, one person gets the home, the other person gets the money. So in each of these examples, it is important to always remember two things. First, both sides have to get something from an agreement. And second... The thing of value that both sides get has to be roughly equal. If the two things are deemed by a court to not be of equal value, then there's the potential that the contract may be deemed null and void. The only other small caveat here is that the thing of value being exchanged must be legal or the contract is void. So I cannot enter into a contract to have someone killed, pay the killer $10,000, and then the killer backs out and sue them and get my money back. Because the court would say that I had an illegal contract. What I was getting from that agreement was illegal considerations, and thus it is not valid. Same things with entering into contractual agreements to buy drugs. The drug dealer could technically back out, and there is no recourse in the court's Because that contract is not enforceable because the consideration in the contract was illegal. Which brings us to the third element of a contract that has to be there in order for something to be legally binding. And that is there has to be acceptance. So after the offer is made that includes the parties, the subject matter, the time and place, and the consideration, then and only then... Can the person who received the offer, aka the offeree, accept the deal? Generally, this is done through actually signing the contract, though in certain circumstances, verbal acceptance is legal. Now, there are a few other small things that we should point out here since we're talking about the formulation of a contract. 
First and foremost, those people entering into a contract must have the legal capacity or the ability to understand the nature and effects of one's act. Generally speaking, those individuals who do not have legal capacity include children or people under the age of 18 and the elderly or people with cognitive decline or dementia. This notion of capacity is built on the idea that both parties have to have the ability to understand what it is that they are agreeing to. If you do not have the ability to understand the terms of the contract, then the contract is void. This can be especially problematic in sports when you have kids or children who are under the age of 18 becoming professional athletes and entering into contractual agreements with teams or with sponsors because they cannot legally understand the terms. So what do we do in those situations? Oftentimes, we have the parent or legal guardian sign on behalf of the child. This can also be an issue with children playing sports with things like waivers and release of liabilities. Again, contractual agreements in which I'm signifying that I understand the risk involved with the activity. Just like with the contractual agreement with the sports team, in cases where we have children playing sports that require waivers or release of liabilities, we oftentimes just get the parent or legal guardian to sign on their behalf. And generally speaking, this is done with minimal issue. That doesn't mean that that contract would necessarily hold up in court, but that's a different conversation for a different day. Now that we know that contracts are everywhere and that everyone, even you, have signed numerous types of contracts in your life, let's move on to talk about the second thing that everyone should know about contracts. And that is that it is illegal to interfere with an existing contract. Even though we just laid out and established that contracts are everywhere and they take multiple different forms, for this second point, I want to focus specifically on employment contracts. Remember, those are agreements between the employers and the employee in which a specific service is exchanged for money. So when we have a legal employment contract, meaning there was an offer, there was consideration and acceptance, the law says that a third party, i.e. another company or another person, cannot knowingly interfere with that contract. If a third party does interfere, we call that tortious interference. When I talk about this in class, when I talk about this to other individuals, I always think it's easiest to break down the construct by looking at examples. And the first one that always comes to mind is from an episode of Seinfeld. Before I play a small clip from that episode, let me set the scene. George is working for the New York Yankees in a low-level position. And one day, he's invited by the New York Mets to lunch to discuss the possibility of George coming to work for the Mets. So what you are about to hear is a conversation from that lunch between the Mets and George, and then a little bit of George talking to Jerry about what happened. George will be blunt. The Mets need somebody to head up scouting, and we think that someone might be you. Head up scouting? Interesting. I'm still here. Now, unfortunately, league rules prevent us from making you an offer while you're still in the contract. You understand what we're talking about? So you're talking... No, no. We're not talking. We're just talking. 
So you need me to get fired. We didn't say that. We couldn't say that. Because even if we did... We couldn't say that we said it. You see what we're saying? You are still paying for this lunch. We didn't say that. Come on in and greet the Mets. Good meeting? There was no meeting. But it was quite a meeting. You are looking at the next director of Mets scouting. The only thing is, I have to get fired from the Yankees first. <laughs> you can do that. Of course. But I really want to leave my mark this time. You know, I want to walk away from the Yankees with people saying, Wow, now that guy got canned. After listening to that, hopefully you can clearly hear that the Mets are trying to interfere with George's employment agreement. But legally, we need to ask, are they in the wrong? And to answer that, let's break down the legal elements in this fictitious case. First and foremost, let's imagine that George is successful in getting fired. Now, in the episode, he does a number of crazy things, like he insults Yankees owner George Steinbrenner. He eats wings while wearing Babe Ruth's jersey and rubs his hands all over it. He destroys a World Series trophy and so on. So let's say that he does get fired and then the Mets come through and actually hire him for the position that they talked about. So after he gets fired, the Yankees learn of the lunch and that George got fired on purpose and that he was just hired by the Mets. Not surprisingly, this pisses the Yankees off. So they decide that they're going to sue the Mets and claim tortious interference. Or in other words, that the Mets interfered with an existing contract. As the party that was harmed and the party that is filing suit, they become the plaintiff in the case and the Mets become the defendants in the case. The first thing that the Yankees would have to show in this tortious interference claim is that they had a binding contract with George. Generally speaking, this isn't that hard to prove. They would just pull a copy of their contract and they would just need to establish that the three elements of a legally binding contract are present. Remember, we just talked about these. They had to have an offer that was accepted and both sides must have relatively equal consideration. And at the same time, both sides must have had capacity when they were entering into the deal. After they establish in court that they had a binding contract, the Yankees would then have to show that the Mets had knowledge of George's contract with the Yankees. Based on the clip that we just heard, we know that this is the case. But how would the Yankees prove this since they weren't sitting at the table hearing the conversation? Well, they could do this in a couple of different ways. They might call George and the two Met employees to testify and ask them under oath about the conversation. They could try to prove that the meeting took place through collecting the receipts from the lunch. Or they might call a waiter or other employees of the diner who can come and testify of the meeting's existence. Regardless of the method they use, though, let's just agree that based on the clip that we heard, they would be able to establish that the Mets knew of George's contract with the Yankees, which means the Yankees would then have to prove the third legal element, which is that the Mets purposefully intended to interfere with the contract. Again, based on the conversation that we heard, we know that this is the case because the Mets employees said that if George was fired, 
then they would hire him and put him in a better position. Though they didn't come out and directly say that they were trying to interfere, based on the suggestions that they made, the Yankees could argue that they did interfere and that the suggestions being made were in fact an attempt to motivate George to break his contract and thus the third element would be satisfied. Now the Mets might argue that they were only suggesting that if George didn't have a job, that they would hire him and that they weren't intending to interfere with the contract, but only they were having a conversation in a lunch with someone else who worked in Major League Baseball. But that defense would be pretty weak and probably wouldn't stand up in court. So let's assume that the Yankees do establish that the Mets purposefully interfered. The fourth thing the Yankees would have to establish is that they suffered actual damages and that those damages were caused by the Mets' actions of interference. Now, what type of things might classify as damages in this case? Well, they could argue that George was an integral part of the organization's success and that losing him hurt the team's ability to perform on the field. Maybe they missed out on signing a key player or something, and thus that cost them money. They might be able to claim that since they fired George, they had to go out and hire a search firm and pay that search firm money to find George's replacement, thus costing them money. Or maybe they could claim another hundred different things. The key point here, though, is that they need to prove that those losses were a direct result of the Mets' interference in George's binding contracts. I always tell my students that in a case like this, we can apply what's called the but-for test. Meaning, we ask, but for the actions of the defendant, would the plaintiff have suffered any damages? If the Mets never interfered, would the Yankees have fired George and been forced to hire a search firm to find a replacement? No. In this case, the interference is the cause of the monetary losses. So if we recap, in our fictitious case of the New York Yankees versus the New York Mets, the Yankees are able to prove all four of the legal elements existed. They had a legally binding contract with George. The Mets knew of that binding contract and they acted purposefully to interfere with that contract, which caused the Yankees to suffer actual damages. The one caveat to this fictitious case, in the episode, George isn't fired. So when the Mets knew of the contract, and why they intended to interfere, since the Yankees don't suffer any actual damages, there is no lawsuit. Or, as George summarizes to Jerry at the end of the episode, I thought I'd fail at failing. Oh, come on, man. I can't do anything wrong. Nonsense. You do everything wrong. Everything. Everything. You really think so? Absolutely. I have no confidence in you. All right. Guess I just have to pick myself up, dust myself off, and throw myself right back down again. That's the spirit. You suck. At this point, you're probably asking yourself, Outside of this fictitious scenario, where do we see interference in existing contracts? Or where do we see tortious interference, especially in the world of sports? And the answer is we see it everywhere. We just don't generally call it tortious interference. We call it by another name, tampering. 
Tampering has become a buzzword, especially in a sport like basketball in the NBA. And then especially in the last few years, as all-star players are now commonly moving from one team to another at the expiration of their contract. The problem is, though, that before their contracts are up, other teams have been found to be going after and actively recruiting those players. It might not be as bad or as blatant as what we heard in that Seinfeld clip, but it still occurs. And the most notable example that you might have actually heard of over the last five years has been Magic Johnson, the former president of basketball operations for the Lakers, who went on Jimmy Kimmel and said the following. I wish I could talk about all those guys. But you'd be contract tampering now. Exactly. Did you exactly. have, when you started this job, did they sit you down and say, okay, so here are some things you have to know. You can't do an interview and say you want the specific player. That's right. uh, and did you have to learn Yeah, I had lot? to go to school. I had to go to... CBA school, salary cap school, and tampering school. <laughs> really? Yeah, you can't tamper with somebody else's player. You can't, you know, I had to learn this new CBA that we have. And uh, What constitutes tampering? Like, if you're on vacation and you run into Paul George, are you not allowed to speak to him? No, we're going to say hi because we know each other. I you see. You just can't say, hey, I want you to come to the Lakers, even though I'm going to be wink- winking like... <laughs> you know what that means, right? <laughs> Most of you might hear that and think, so what? All that he did was say that Paul George is good at basketball, but he was talking about a player who was under contract and suggesting that his team might want to sign him. Just as the Mets didn't directly say that they're going to hire George, they implied it. And in both cases, the person had a binding contract. The third party knew of that contract, and yet they said things with the intent of interfering with it. Now, the Lakers didn't get sued by the Thunder, but the NBA did fine the Lakers half a million dollars for tampering, or in other words, for tortious interference. Talking about the Lakers and the fine that they suffered and the fictitious lawsuit in Seinfeld actually does a great job of leading us into our third and final thing that everyone should know about contracts. And that is... What is the punishment for breaking a contract? In class or in a lecture that I give on the topic, especially when we're talking about sport contracts, most people just think, well, the courts should just make the person play or make the athlete live up to the contract and do whatever the contract says that they should. For example, if a star football player, someone like LeVon Bell, a couple of years ago, holds out and refuses to play for the Steelers, people just say, well, the Steelers should just go to court, sue him, and force him to play. But it's not that simple and straightforward because of something called the 13th Amendment, which in part says, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Or in layman's terms, the 13th Amendment says slavery is illegal, and forcing people to perform tasks against their will is considered slavery. That means the punishment for breaking a contract is not as simple as just making the person work for you. 
So the court would not just make George work for the Yankees or LeVon Bell play for the Steelers because making someone do that violates the Constitution. But what they could do is they could issue a negative injunction. Legally speaking, a negative injunction, quote, forbids a party from providing services for parties other than the aggrieved party, end quote. Practically, this means that the court can't make LeVon Bell play for the Steelers, but they can ban him from playing football for any other team until his contract is fulfilled. In this way, they are not forcing him to play, but they are saying if you do want to play, you have to play for the team that you have a contract with. Sometimes, though, the employer might not want the player back, or they might not want the employee back. So instead of seeking a negative injunction, they might seek monetary damages. They might ask for the person who broke the contract to pay them. And monetary damages can really come in three different forms. The first form is something called expectation interest. And this is the benefits that the party had expected to get from the other party. So if a organization violates their employment agreement with the employee, the employee could sue and ask for expectation interest, which is the benefits that the party expected to get from the contract. If an organization breaches their contract with their employee and that employee was set to make $100,000 from that organization, they can ask for expectation interest, meaning they can ask that the court makes the company pay them that benefit, pay them that $100,000 that was already agreed to in the contract. But they can actually go further than that because you can also ask for reliance interest, which is money that is awarded to the person due to the losses that that person suffers. Or they can ask for restitution interest, which restores the person back to the condition before the contract was breached. So in each of these cases, the plaintiff is asking the court not to have the person come back and work for them, but to have the person who breached the contract or the organization that breached the contract make them whole by rewarding them the money that was guaranteed and awarding them money for any damages that they suffered as a result of the contract breach. So we can ask for an injunctive relief or a negative injunction to where a person can't work for another company in the same industry until their contract is fulfilled. We can ask for monetary damages through these different means. Or with certain contracts, we can ask for specific performance. Or we can ask the court to force the breacher of the contract to live up to the terms of the contract. Now, this is where it gets a little bit shaky because I just said you can't force someone to work for you because it violates the 13th Amendment. But what you can do is, especially with sales contracts, you can force the person who sold you the item to live up to that agreement and actually give you the item for the agreed-upon price. For example, in the sale of a land or sale of a house, if we have a legally binding contract that stipulates I will pay $100,000 in exchange, you will give me the piece of land or the deed to the piece of land, and that contract 
is signed and meets all of the three elements of a legally binding contract, and then you decide that you are not going to give me the land, I could sue you, take you to court, and ask the court for specific performance. I can ask them to make you give me the piece of land in exchange for that $100,000. So we can't force people to work for us, but we can force them in the courts to give us the agreed upon item that we stipulated in that contract. So there you have it, a nice quick crash course that hits on three things everyone should know when it comes to contracts. First and foremost, we said contracts are everywhere. When you think about what is a contract, it's not just an employment agreement between an organization and an employee. Contracts are so much more than that. They include the written agreements to sell items or land to one another. They can include things like wills or marriage licenses. But the contracts that you're probably the most used to signing are terms of use agreements, agreements with companies like Apple's, iTunes, Spotify, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Those agreements meet the three defining characteristics or the three defining legal elements of a contract. That there was an offer, that there was consideration for both sides, and that there was acceptance. We also said that when there is a binding contract, it is illegal to interfere with it. We use the example of Seinfeld and the more sport example talking about tampering in the NBA. And when a company or an organization or a person does interfere with that contract, we talked about the punishments that the courts can dole out. We said they can't force you into work, but they can issue negative injunctions and make it so you can't play for another sports team or work for another company within that same industry. We said that they can punish you by making you pay out the cost of the contract or making you pay out for the losses that are suffered by the organization or by the individual as a result of you breaching that. And we said in certain circumstances, they can also force you to exchange the items or force you into specific performance that the contract stipulated that you agreed to. If you have any questions about these three things that everyone should know about contracts, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the sport professor. Follow us and stay tuned for more episodes where we deep dive sport specific contracts and talk about some of the unique aspects within them. Until next time though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the sport professor podcast.